Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we find out how Manitoba and a team of volunteers worked to make sure everything was in place to welcome more than 300 Ukrainian nationals to Winnipeg last night. They arrived on the first of three flights chartered by the federal government. We speak with Canada's ambassador to Ukraine about reopening the embassy in Kyiv earlier this month and the work that's being done there now. We find out more about the deadly and devastating storm that tore across southern Ontario and into Quebec over the weekend. What was it? And how can we be better prepared to deal with an increasing number of dangerous weather events? But first, at least 19 kids and two adults have been shot and killed at an elementary school in the small town of Uvalde in southern Texas, the latest in a string of deadly gun violence in the U.S. And once again, the question is, how could it be prevented from happening again? Of course, there is lots of work going on in the country trying to prevent these things from happening again, even though it seems like it, we're powerless to watch them happen again and again. One of those who's been doing this kind of work is Ron Avi Astor. He holds the Marjorie Crump Chair Professorship in Social Welfare at UCLA's, UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs with a joint appointment uh, in the UCLA Graduate School of Education and Information Studies. He's also one of the authors of a plan titled A Call for Action to Prevent Gun Violence in the USA, written in response in some part to school shootings. And he joins me tonight. Uh, thank you so much for your time this evening. Thank you for having me, Ben. I wish it was under better circumstances. Yeah, I mean, you work in this. You work in this field. You, you spend a lot of time looking at what's happening. Uh, when you see reports of another shooting, especially one as horrific as this one, where do you start? You know, I think emotionally, it's not just our country. It's it's the whole world. I'm getting calls from literally everywhere around the world of a sense of that we failed. That 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 the United States is, as you said earlier in your introduction uh that we're unable to protect our children uh and all the work and all the money and all the policies that we put forth on trying to get positive mental health uh were for naught um and that's it actually the initial response that somebody who spends their life doing this has when you see that happen um but i i am hopeful still i'm hopeful uh because I think that there is a possibility. I don't know if it'll be in this shooting, uh, but it might be in future. And I don't know if it has to escalate in the United States for people to kind of have that aha realization. Uh, the data is very clear on what we need to do. Uh, the general public is very clear in terms of wanting to support uh, both sensible gun laws and mental health and supporting kids. I think it's the lack of will uh, at the uh, national, regional, and local political level, as, as the uh, legislator just spoke, uh, you know, what are we doing here uh, that's missing? And that's not going to happen unless there's a groundswell uh, at the local and regional level and, and having research supported back as well in terms of what works and what doesn't work. Uh, I think we could, you know, the hope in me feels that if we could get people outraged enough uh, to the point where they understand that these are children's lives, somehow there's a disconnect there in terms of people's freedom and their uh, wishes and willingness to hold uh, firearms and to fragment this issue into a thousand different issues, mental health or isolated people, rather than what we know we, we need to do. Uh, 
that we'll see this over and over and over and over again. And I, I, I can't believe that that's going to go on forever. I believe that at a certain point, people in the United States are going to say enough is enough. But I don't know when that is. And so my response is similar to yours. And I think that we need to work on getting people to have the will to act. It felt like after Sandy Hook, enough was enough. It felt like the momentum was there. The anger was there. What's happened in the last 10 years since? If anything, during the pandemic, gun sales skyrocketed in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, from a research perspective, the school shootings uh, have done two interesting things. Uh, the amount of money uh, spent on mental health in schools in the United States is tremendous. It's in the billions and billions if you add up local, state, uh, federal, uh, and programs, evidence-based programs to reduce violence in schools have also uh, increased along with professionals being trained. And uh, the irony of this all is when you look at California, for example, or other states, even Texas, um, and the data is true all across the United States, for victimization and violence like bullying, kicking, name-calling, um, those kinds of things, e even bringing weapons onto school grounds or knives or guns or other kinds of things has dramatically dropped in the last 20 years. I mean, it's dropped 50, 75 percent, depending on the specific behavior. So in a weird way, at the local level, we have been very successful in reducing risk factors uh, for kids in the spaces that they're at when you look at all of the United States or California. But the irony, as I was saying in all this, is that the school shootings trump everything, and, and for good reason. Uh, these mass school shootings, so we could have all the progress. We could have 75% reductions in weapon carrying and bringing weapons onto school grounds in California. One school shooting from a person who has a multiplicity of different issues, uh, mental health, access mm -hmm. to weapons, obsessions, uh, believes in ideology, all those that one person could actually impact the whole world. So I, I think we need a different frame of understanding and seeing this. Uh, my view of this right now, after all these years of doing it, is we have to start viewing it in the same way that we see a terrorist act, to certain ways. It's right. not the same as a bullying act, because the goal is really to terrorize the country or the world. And the second goal is to have that perpetrator's name live for perpetuity, uh, just like many of their, or their cause, or their belief, or their idea. And the last piece is that they're also suicidal. Forget that. The vast majority of these shooters are suicidal and homicidal and want their name to live on. So that's a different approach. And I think if we start yeah. thinking about it that way, uh, we might have some more success. Speaking with Ron Aviaster this half hour, he holds the Marjorie Crump Chair Professorship in Social Welfare at the UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs. He's also a longtime student and expert on school violence. We're talking about the latest school shooting in the U.S., 18 children and three adults killed today in a small town called Uvalde, Texas. Governor Greg Abbott says the suspected shooter, an 18-year-old man, was also killed by police, by responding officers there. The Prime Minister today, Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, tweeting, my heart breaks for everyone affected by this horrific shooting in Texas today. I'm thinking of the parents, the families, the friends, the classmates, and the co-workers whose lives have been forever changed. Canadians are mourning with you and are here for you. Um, Professor Astor, 
you talked about there is signs it isn't all hopeless here. There are lots of smart people in the U.S. working on trying to find solutions to this, despite the fact there is such a preponderance of guns and gun control is a big problem. Uh, but there are some signs for optimism out there, despite how just profoundly depressing today is. I agree. Uh, and I'm hoping that, 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 you know, Congress will act. I'm hoping that legislators will act in this narrow window where people are mourning and um, sympathizing with the families right now, that this is our chance. Uh, after Parkland, they tried, as you said, after Sandy Hook, they tried. Uh, we'll know in two or three weeks whether we'll get any movement on those high levels. But I think there's a lot to do at the local and, and regional level that could then lead to national change. And uh, that's what you mentioned before the break in terms of ideas of kind of a a state-by-state state or a national-level public health strategy and treating, you know, school safety and particularly school shootings uh, and guns as a hazardous material. Uh, and that might be an easier way out for us to get a groundswell to start supporting uh, the measures that we know we need to do. What might that look like in practice? Well, I mean, number one, uh, one of the biggest findings we have in the research literature, uh, not only around shootings, but about severe and lethal events, is that uh, a lot of people know about it beforehand. So there, there is, you know, the students' knowledge in particular, and I'm, as, as this story un, 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 unfolds, we don't know, but my guess is that there are people in the community and in the high school that he attended before and earlier that have a long story uh, with the perpetrator and the student, and they may know, and generally perpetrators tell people beforehand, they write about it, uh, family members know about it. So, so this is not generally uh, a shock to people that are around the perpetrator. There's, there's signs early on, and that, that, that information needs to be unleashed in a way so that the public students, teachers, family members understand that it's not just a mental health issue or it's not just a Second Amendment issue, that these signs put together having an arsenal, uh, obsession with firearms, being on websites of the shooters all the time, being suicidal and sometimes speaking, that these are the signs where they need to act, you know, and get help. And we need a system that's able to respond to that in a correct way, uh, because a massive number of kids and teachers generally know about these events uh, before they happen, and they worry about these individuals when they look at these things together. And we haven't yet done that. We've separated it out to either weapons or mental health or uh, those other kinds of in separate categories. Uh, I'd say uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we found out this shooter had an arsenal of weapons, and that his family members knew about it, and that he had issues with his high school. This has been the pattern uh, all along. Um, and that unique combination is something that schools and um, kids and other family members need to learn to recognize uh, so that you could use uh, those voices to help prevent. Uh, we spend a lot of time after a shooting trying to figure it out, but there's been very little effort in using a public health approach to prevent it. And number one is listening to the voices and know what to see and know what to hear uh, when, when people are concerned. I think the second biggest issue is to disentangle it from the Second Amendment issue. Uh, nobody thinks that 
that either kids, whether they be high school kids or junior high kids, or um, should be owning an AK-47. I don't think that any of our founders would have agreed with that. And uh, I think there could be reasonable education from a public health perspective on um, what you should do if you see people with these, uh, how you should help with these kind of uh, issues, uh, obsessions with firearms, uh, suicidal, homicidal, uh, and where you should go and how you should get help to save your friends' lives rather than snitching. Uh, and we haven't done that yet either. There's threat assessment techniques. One is a great one from the University of Virginia. But um, nothing in terms of really dealing with the masses on these kinds of issues uh, here. I, I think if we could avoid the Second Amendment arguments uh, and liberty and realize that nobody wants kids to have guns at schools, particularly at high schools and middle schools, then we can move for a joint strategy, uh, you know, Republicans and Democrats to start doing some education in public health so that we don't uh, have a lot of straw men here. Ron Aviaster, thank you so much for your insight on this tonight. Much appreciated. All right. Thank you. And joining me now from Ottawa is uh, Keith Egli. He's city councillor for Ward 9, one of the badly hit areas on Saturday. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Busy days, I'm sure. Yes, it, it certainly has been. But but thank you for the opportunity to talk about it and, and share some information with the public. Um, just what on, for you on Saturday, um, where were you and, and what was it like to, to live through this? So I was I was at home with my wife um, and. Um, we, you know, we looked out the window and we saw the skies getting dark and, and, and the winds picking up. And uh, my area was, was hard hit by the tornado that we had in uh, 2018. So, uh, you know, we both got concerned. Uh, we, uh, we took our dog, went down to the basement. And uh, when we came back up, um, there were several large trees that had come down uh, on my street, uh, blocking one end of it. Um, there was damage to a number of the homes uh, on my street, siding removed, that sort of thing. Uh, a little bit of damage to my roof of my house. Um, and then I did what I did after the tornado, and I, I went out further, and to, first within my own community and then further out to my ward, and, and uh, I started to see the, uh, the impacts on more and more houses, uh, damaged trees coming down. Um, and then I was hearing reports from other parts of my ward further out, um, in particular, uh, a community uh, known as uh, Pine Glen mm-hmm. and uh, an adjoining community country place. Um, I got out there um, the next day um, after, because, you know, I didn't really have um, daylight on my on my side. I got to as right. many places as I could with, with, the, with the sun still up and um, got to there the next day and... Uh, both of them, Pine Glen in particular, the the uh, the devastation was was absolutely horrific. The number of houses with trees uh, through the roofs, cars smashed. Um, it was it looked just like the tornado all over again in terms of its impact. Uh, different community than got hit last time in my work by the tornado, but very similar uh, path of destruction. Were you surprised at all, just given the fact that we weren't expecting anything? I mean, we weren't expecting something so devastating. I, I was. I, you know, they, they, you know, there were uh, severe thunderstorm warnings and and watches that were coming in over the over the phone, letting us know that. 
no indication that there was, you know, anything like a, uh, like a tornado at that point. Um, and I guess they really, you know, they don't think it was a tornado. But again, as I've said to many people, I don't really care what you call the event. You have to look at what it, what it did to the city. And I was actually very moved when I when I got to Country Place and and to and to Pine Glen, when I saw it, I, I just I said to myself, how can this be happening again? This was just not even four years ago. We we saw this this type of destruction, and I really couldn't believe that it was happening again. The challenge there must be a lot of challenges just trying to clean up. What are the, some of the problems and issues you're facing so far? So you know. Th- Part of, part of what happened, of course, is is, is our, our power system, our hydro uh, network was impacted significantly. And um, so we're still a lot of people without power. Um, but for some of my communities, again, like Pine Glen and another community called Maribel Gardens, mm-hmm. um, most of the people in those communities, even though they're within the city, are privately serviced. So they're on well and septic. So when they don't have power, they don't have pumps. When they don't have pumps, they don't have water. So they've got all this, this damage uh, to their homes, to their cars. Um, and um, at the same time, uh, they're struggling with, with how to get water. Uh, things as basic as where do I go to shower? Uh, how do I keep my, my, my food safe and, and, and fresh? Um, so, you know, the city, we've worked to set up what we call welcome or respite centers. Uh, where people can charge devices, re- you know, repurposing uh, civic uh, buildings, you know, like uh, like arenas. So uh, w- one of the arenas on Maryville Road in my area is, has been opened up to the public. It's open 12 hours a day. People can come there. They can have a shower. They can uh, plug in their uh, their phones or their laptops. They can get a bite to eat. Uh, we have uh, uh, bins set up so that they can bring the, the spoiled food from their fridges and their freezers and 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 get rid of that uh, safely and easily. Um, so, you know, we're all waiting on hydro. Hydro is the, 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 the big piece in this, the, the wild card. The sooner we can get hydro back, the sooner we can you know, get people back to, back to normal. Um, the cleanup itself, the trees and the debris uh, in some of the neighborhoods uh, will, take, will take weeks um, to, to be done. And, and I guess, uh, Ben, what's different in this case from the tornado was the tornado was quite area specific, um, whereas the event that we had on the weekend goes across the whole city. One of the other areas that's very significantly impacted is Navin. So I'm sort of in the, in the, in the west end of, of, of the city, uh, southwest end, and, um, and Navin, of course, is in the east end. So it went right through the city and with with small exceptions, um, pretty much every community was impacted in some way. Keith, any advice to city councillors across the country listening to this about just what to do or, or how you can, how you can prepare for these things? Uh, well, you know, uh, you know, have, have a plan, you know, um, and, and I don't, I just don't mean for the city, but you know, we, we, one thing we did learn from, from, from the tornado is a lot of people have created emergency kits in their homes and city help to provide information as to how to do that. So whether that's a battery operated radio, a generator, a couple of days supply of water, um, flashlights, all those sorts of things. So, so people were and are generally better prepared for something like this. You never can be completely prepared. Um, but, but we did learn from that to, to be, you know, more resilient, if you will, in terms of what we keep around our homes. Uh, and, 
as I said, the city learned that we need to get our, our response up quickly and, and it has to be diverse, covering everything from health issues to, um, you know, things as basic as, as getting a shower or a warm meal. So we did learn from that. The city's been through a lot and um, we, we need a break. So hopefully we will learn, but hopefully we won't have to put those lessons into place anytime soon. Keith Eglai, thank you so much for your time tonight. Good luck. Thank you. And joining me now with more is Environment and Climate Change Canada Senior Climatologist, David Phillips. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Hey, nice to join you, Ben, always. So what was this, a derecho? It's not a word I'd I'd ever heard before when referred to a weather system. Um, So what exactly happened? Well, I mean, it was almost weather hell broke out here in on the first kind of the official kickoff of summer. The first day was summer-like. I mean, the sun was out there seducing people to come outside, go to the garden center, put their boat in the water, go camping, hiking. I mean, there were no shut-ins uh, here in Ontario and Quebec on, on Saturday. Mm-hmm. And yet the weather was a bit um, threatening. Uh, the heat and humidity were very high. Um, about noon where I live, north of Toronto, the clouds started coming over, thunder and lightning. So, hey, there was some wild weather broke broke out. Now, we, we knew it was going to be a, a dark and stormy day. I mean... Uh, we had that, the, the fuel for driving storms is the heat and humidity. We always get that, it seems, with the thunderstorm. And then there was an undercutting uh, uh, cold front that came and kicked this stuff right up into the, uh, to the uh, middle atmosphere and a lot of uh, downbursts and updrafts. And, and hey, it was, a, it was a wild day. Now, it all, we didn't forecast it as a direcho. Uh, you never do. You never forecast the EF3 tornado. You wait till after the result. To assess the damage and the the aftermath, and then you finally give it a name or or decide what ranking it should be. But these these directos are not very common. I would I've seen years in Ontario and in the Great Lakes area that we don't get any. It's something that you wouldn't see in British Columbia, rarely on the prairies. I think I don't know of any, and certainly not in Atlantic Canada. So it tends to be something in the midwestern part of the United States, the Great Lakes, New York, Pennsylvania, and of course in Ontario and Quebec. And I've seen them before. They tend to be, Ben, just uh, very long, uh, strong windstorms that blow down a lot of trees. And we have a lot of forests in Ontario and typically in cottage country or up in the <clears throat> northwestern part of the province, you'll have derechos that brought down, you know, hundreds of thousands of trees. And so that's really my history of this. Never have I seen one of these, these storms that have tracked from the southwestern part of the province right up through to almost the Nickel Belt, Eastern Ontario, and into Quebec. It was well-organized. It was, it's almost like, Ben, I would describe it as a line of soldiers, just that front line, just moving ahead and, and plowing everything in its way. And very fast moving. You couldn't drive uh, faster than the storm traveled if you went from London, where the first storm effects occurred, up into the uh, Ottawa area along the, the 401. So a lot of it, and it had elements of what you find with a, a summer thunderstorm, a garden variety thunderstorm. It had humidity, it had rain, a little bit of hail, but boy, it was the strong winds. And they just were relentless. We saw winds that were blew up to 120, 130, 140 kilometers per hour. So Ben, not as strong as a tornado, but what it lacked in strength, it made up in aerial extent. Uh, rarely have I ever seen a summer weather event that would truck right across the province. Hey, that's a winter event. A blizzard, ice storm comes from Windsor up to Ottawa and buries the province, but not in the summertime. It tends to be a 
a neighborhood kind of storm, an intersection, and then the big cleanup occurs. This one was province-wide and brought tree damage, everything. I think, Ben, to some degree, I look back at this and I see a bit of bad luck. I mean, it was on a Saturday, a long weekend in May. So people were out, more vulnerable to this kind of event. And then, of course, the winds just tore these trees and huge trees, maples and poplars and oak trees, right out of the root ball. I mean, these weren't just uh, shallow-rooted pines and spruces. These were big suckers that had been century-old trees, just torn right out of the ground, like in, just like, and thrown in the atmosphere like spears or javelins. So it was really uh, an enormous kind of uh, a storm, widespread and strong winds, and boy, it. Uh, it was fueled by by really a very active uh, and and boisterous kind of atmosphere. There has been talk about just how the warning systems work. Obviously, I in fact saw someone complaining about it early on Saturday yes. from Ontario. Uh, how how does the warning system function here? And, and and obviously there are criticisms about you know obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. But how exactly would it work in an event like this? Because as you mentioned, it, it was a, just a very big, very strong storm. Well, you know, we have a, a we have one of the best warning systems in the world. It, it's top rate. It has saved lives already. It's been in around the one we have with the alert ready, where you get that um, uh, a warning on your cell phone wherever you are at the golf course or the marina or or just picnicking. It's it's there, and uh, people get annoyed sometimes, be bothered. They think it's well, maybe it's an amber alert. Well, no, it, it's a it's a weather alert, and. Um, and but for something you can never satisfy everybody. They don't get it fast enough. They feel and and um, and the, the warning occurred after the winds. To some people said, I thought it worked very well where I am, and I didn't get one. I wasn't threatened necessarily by the by the, the the. You don't send this out for everything. Otherwise, Ben, people would just cry wolf. They'd say, Oh well, it's another one of these faults alarms. So you have to be very careful on the kind of perfect conditions that you set this off. Now this is the first one that had ever been set, had been released with a thunderstorm. Uh, right. We had set them off with tornadoes, but uh, last year, a policy that we said, if wind speeds get up to 130 kilometers per hour in a, in a thunderstorm, that is very threatening, and we will send out that uh, that alert. And uh, and so it was a sound. But you know, Ben, I think my, there's a lesson here. I think for me, the takeaway message is that, you know, you just can't rely on the alerts and warnings from the weather service to as the only way of staying informed. I mean, this was not a sneak attack bit. This was, there were all kinds of signs of this thing being a star, a dark and, and stormy day in, uh, uh, in Ontario and Quebec. The atmosphere showed you. The nature never, it always forewarned you before it hit you. This is not a sneak attack or a, a terrorist in the sky. This is, this is something that was uh, well seen by people. I said, I remember one person said to me, Ben, the best weather instrument ever invented was the, the pair of human eyes. Right. And all you had to do was look up and look out. You could smell it. You could see it. You could hear it. The thunder, the lightning, the winds, the rain. And that was before it really hit. So there was a lot of ample warning. And we are respectful of the weather here as Canadians. We don't, hey, there are more Canadians that die falling out of bed than die from the weather. And that's because we get a lot of weather but we're also respectful. We pay attention to it. We know the, the weather. So I think, you know, there's several ways you can get the weather warning from the cell phone, from your Internet, from your uh, uh, people telling you. But also you can just look up and look at it 
and you see it and you know the only thing on your mind is seeking safety and protection, get your loved ones and, and, uh, and seek, uh, seek shelter. So uh, I think it's a lesson that we all have to learn. But hey, there will always be complaints because the forecast warning didn't get out in time to some people. But hey, and we'll look at it. We'll see if we can fine tune it, make it better. But it'll never be perfect. You've watched many storms over the years, uh, David. How would you rate this one? You know, I, I think it was odd in the sense it wasn't the elements of it, the wind, the rain, the, the, the thunder, lightning, the, the hail. <clears throat> that was all what you see in a garden variety thunderstorm sometimes. But I think it was the size of it, though, Ben, that, that shook me up. Something, that, as you say, I, you don't see in the, in some people were likening it to the ice storm of 98 that, that spread misery from Kingston to the Bay of Fundy. Well, this one spread misery from, from Windsor to Ottawa to Quebec City. So it had that kind of, of size that you would see in a winter event, but clearly not a summer event. And I think there was a little bit of, Ben, if I could say, a little bit of bad luck. I, I can't believe a scientist telling you that, but hey, there was some bad luck. And I think the bad luck was this. If it occurred in April, hey, there wouldn't have been as much damage because the trees would not have leaves on them. The winds, winds would just whistle through those, those uh, limbs. If it had been July, hey, that root ball would be solid like cement in the ground. It was May. The ground is soft. And those winds, the leaves are on trees. And when the winds hit it, they were like sailboats. They just, the sails, they just added pressure and stress and, and, and it took it down. And so I, I think the timing was uh, was crucial. The, the uh, event was. And, you know, we may not see something like this for, for years, but it is in the annals of, of weather catastrophes in Canada. It was a big one. It was destructive. It was deadly. I mean, 10 people lost their lives because, and they were, a lot of them were outdoors. Nobody was killed indoors. There were all trees falling, boats capsizing and drownings, uh, trees, campers with, with uh, trees falling on them. It was a tragic situation, but uh, hopefully we've, we've learned something about it. And I think it is that great respect that Canadians have for weird, wild and wacky weather. David Phillips, as always, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ben. Bye-bye now. Well, joining me now with more on that is Eva Cohen. She's a disaster relief expert and founder of Civil Protection Youth Canada. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Hi, nice to meet you. Um, you were you were just to, to begin with the storm where you are in, in in western Quebec. It was hit as well, wasn't it? Oh yes. Um, unfortunately, there are still lots of households without power. Although it's slowly coming back now, so that's a great relief. What was it? I mean, just how bad a storm was it? My mom's in Ottawa, so she was mentioning that it just kind of hit, and it was a lot more severe than people had anticipated. Indeed, and one thing that I found quite interesting was that um, you know when you say people are getting used to this sort of thing, a lot of people, if they got the alert that there was bad weather coming, didn't necessarily think it was important to act on it, which is really telling, I think. Um, so a lot of people were very unprepared for the damage that occurred with the storm. Interesting, because the first thing I noticed, uh, and I was away, so the first thing I saw on social media was someone complaining about that alert, saying it wasn't needed. You know, are they going to send alerts for everything? And next thing, an hour later, we were reading about this devastating damage. Um, the alert system still needs some work, doesn't it, in terms of both how it's rolled out and, and also getting people to pay attention to it? Yes, and, and I think that kind of points to a, a bigger picture problem. You know, it's not just 
the alert, but it's also that people really still feel that, although we're seeing more and more of those events, that it doesn't necessarily um, apply to them. You know, people feel very safe and um, they don't necessarily feel that they have a role to play to, in protecting our communities or ourselves in what is to be expected. So everybody seems to realize that climate change is happening and in fact that it's already here and that these events are going to happen more frequently. Uh, but there's still this hesitation in accepting that we all need to do better in anticipating and preparing and responding to them. How do you think that manifested itself? I mean, you, you mentioned people ignoring the warnings, but just in general, um, I mean, it was it was a long weekend, May 24th, that first Victoria Day weekend. People are always out of the weather's good, probably a little more hesitant than usual to head indoors. Um, but how did that manifest itself uh, over, over this weekend in terms of people just not really paying attention to the danger that was either lurking in the sky above them or on their phones? Well, I think part of the problem really is that even though people might have been aware of the danger, they're not ready to deal with the consequences. So if you think of the fact that the government has been telling us for the last decades to have um, a kit and be prepared and have a plan, people still don't do that. What, why is that? And so in this situation, we saw this very clearly, you know, a lot of households are very self-sufficient, but then there are so many that aren't. Um, so even the basics of having drinking water at home, you know, and, and supplies to last for a little bit, we, we could see right away, you know, there were huge lineups at all the fast food chains and people just didn't seem to be prepared for something like this at all. I mean, this is what this is what you advocate for. So the, the work that you do, um, it's obviously it must be somewhat disheartening, but also to a certain extent, a challenge, a challenge ahead to try to get people to at least be prepared for. I mean, out here in Victoria, we often talk about earthquake preparedness because it's an earthquake zone. So we have our little kit at home, uh, but it wouldn't last us long. Let's be honest. I don't think any of us are really prepared for the kind of disasters that we see in other parts of the world, for instance. Yes, and I think um, this is where uh, my work really touches on this because I think what we need to do goes way beyond having a kit and having a plan. You know, it's it's this confidence that the government has our back and at one point somebody will come to our rescue, both physically and financially. That That is just no longer adequate. So the work that we're doing really is um, to to basically change people's mindset. And, and this is also why we're focusing on bringing youth um, into this world of um, thinking about disasters and knowing how to protect ourselves. Um, because we've realized that we really need a culture change um, in terms of preparedness. And this whole idea that we all have to do something to be part of how we deal with this goes beyond just having a kit and waiting for this to be over. So if you think of what we're dealing with right now, um, and you've mentioned the, the damage everywhere and the destruction and the debris, you know, we have to rethink what we actually mean by response or recovery. And um, as you may have seen uh, on our website, you know, we're, we're clearly taking uh, lessons learned from international best practice into account with our training curriculum and, and with our program as such to say, 
there are so many more capabilities that are actually not integrated into our response system at the moment, technical capabilities that are simply missing um, that have traditionally been part of private sector response, basically. Um, but as we're seeing more and more of those devastating incidents and, and the flooding in BC or, or the fire in, in Lytton have been great examples of that, you know, it's, it's a, Basically, it's a reminder that we can't um, go on the way we're doing it right now. You know, having a kit is just not the solution to to the problems that we're going to encounter. It certainly seems like trying to put a Band-Aid on a broken leg, doesn't, doesn't it? When you, just have, when you just have your little kit sitting around waiting for, you know, with a couple of days of supplies, maybe a wind-up radio. Um, I want to ask, I'm going to ask you about just how we should be better prepared and what that actually looks like. But just in terms of this last weekend, what did you see that you were impressed by? And what did you see that, that you were not impressed by in terms of the response? Um, as you said, we're just north of Ottawa, so we're in, in Cantley, which is more of a rural area. But uh, I was very impressed um, just after the storm was um, basically dying down. You know, we went out to see what happened. And, and already a lot of um, people had gone out with chainsaws and cleared trees from roads. And that was just so um, heartwarming to see. Um, and, you know, how everybody kind of comes together and, and wants to help. And, and I think, you know, the willingness to help people in need is, is absolutely there. But what I'm still missing is the proactive coordination of that willingness, you know, so we're still too reactive. We're talking about the deadly storm, the devastating storm that ripped through southern Ontario, uh, southwestern, south-central, southeastern Ontario into Quebec over the weekend, uh, caused all kinds of damage. It was a, an intense storm that we haven't really seen much of before, uh, called a derecho. Um, it's not something that's particularly common, certainly not something that's never been seen, but just the sheer intensity of it and just how widespread it was. It did damage just about everywhere. So for instance, in a huge city like Ottawa, Ottawa, of course, geographically is just massive. Uh, the city itself has found itself having to clean up all over the place, which of course makes the cleanup and the emergency response slower. Uh, we're talking about emergency preparedness with Eva Cohen. She's a disaster relief expert and founder of uh, Civil Protection Youth Canada. She's uh, speaking with us tonight from Cantley in Quebec, which uh, is in Western Quebec, uh, also an area that was hit by the storm over the weekend. And we've been just talking about uh, having to change attitudes in this country because really when disasters like this are A, frequent and B, widespread, uh, you can't depend on someone to show up at your front door with help um, as much as perhaps we might have been able to in the past. Um, Eva, this is a lesson I learned during the ice storm because I lived through that in Montreal. When when things get really bad, uh, you're pretty much on your own for a while. And uh, it's something you're right. We, we forget it a lot. What advice do you have for people out there about being prepared for, for these kinds of incidents, even though you don't expect them? Well, I think in general, we have to rethink a few of those terms you know what does preparedness mean so to me it means being ready to lessen the impact of a disaster not just to be able to sustain a few days longer than others might um, so in general i think what we should be doing um, is to come together as society you know so just the same way that um, when you think of the response system or you know the emergency system as such um 
what is that built for? You know, it's built for emergencies, but not those big disasters. And as you mentioned, you know, just the sheer uh, distance of this storm, uh, you can imagine the damage that that has caused. So who do we think should be cleaning this up? (laughs) Who has that capability? You know, who's doing this? Should that be our first responders? Clearly not, because they have other um, priorities and and they have to be ready for their first response duties. So who whose task is that? We've started and to call so, the military, Eva. You know, that's the other problem. We're relying on the military to do this work now, which we didn't do in the past. So you're right. There's there's a real lack out there of of people doing this work or lack of, 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 of people power. Exactly. And then mm-hmm. when you think of that, you know, the military should be the federal uh, resort, you know, the last resort. So what else is there between municipal capacity, which is basically first response? Uh, what kind of help is there from the provinces? What capacity is there? There's not much more than emergency management. But then if you think of that, you know, who who are these emergency managers going to manage? I mean, who, what is the capacity? And we don't have that. And with these incidents that we're having now, we're starting to realize that there is a big gap. So to me, the solution is that the government should be enabling citizens to be part of the solution. You know, we need basically a second response force that can help in those incidents, which means that they have to be integrated into the system before things go wrong. Because that is basically, when you think of it, why we call the military, right? Because they're easy to mobilize, they, they have structure, um, they have all the qualities that we need to, to integrate them into the response, but it's not necessarily the, the capabilities that they bring that, that are needed. Um, it's, it, it, this is something that should exist on the local level. And when you think of what the private sector usually um, brings to the table in those incidents, which is why recovery usually takes so long, because we have to wait for private sector to take on a lot of those tasks. This is where we're missing the capacity and the capabilities. On the other hand, citizens have a lot of those skills. So as I just said here, um, in our neighborhoods too, where you see, you know, people are out with chainsaws right away and want to help and, and can help. But if this is organized in a way that first responders, for example, know early on who is there to help and and who can do what, you know, and which jobs can they delegate to whom, then the whole response phase will be so much faster and the recovery phase can start so much faster. And then what does that mean, the recovery phase? You know, I mean, as you've you've said in BC, you've had all those terrible examples, you know, that it's usually when the infrastructure is impacted is when things take so much longer to get back to normal or, or you know, to, to bring people back into their homes. So that's, that's really the big challenge. So this would be basically trying to mobilize people who usually just end up as sort of, not always, because there's lots of people out there who do lots of good work every time there's an emergency, uh, but basically mobilizing the population to be more useful or at least more, more of an asset during these disasters as opposed to simply waiting for help to arrive. Exactly. And useful is one, one aspect, but the other is reliability, right? I mean, you have the whole liability issue if you just have volunteers come out and help. 
So there is a clear role for the government to enable people to to actually take on that role and and be part of of the solution. Eva Cohen, um, I, I, I gather we're going to be needing, we're going to be having this conversation more often because it doesn't feel like these weather events are going to lessen anytime soon. Uh, fascinating to talk to you, and it's, it seems like a great idea. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for your interest. And joining me now from Kiev is Larissa Galatza. She's Canada's ambassador to Ukraine and recently returned to the Ukrainian capital. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me. What was it like to go back? I mean, imagine, I imagine you returned to a quieter city than what we'd seen over several months, but still a, a city much changed. A city much changed, a country much changed. Yeah, on our, you know, when, when we left Kyiv, uh, we were, uh, you know, we were leaving because we were preparing for the worst, but still very much hoping for the best. Uh, we went to Lviv, which is in western Ukraine. Uh, but when we, when the, the day the war started and we had to leave Lviv, we knew that we were leaving a country that would never, uh, that wouldn't be the same afterwards. And so, indeed, coming back uh, uh, changed air in the city, uh, changed sense. Of, of of energy and of course the um, the kinds of uh, protections and, and and sandbags and block posts and things like control posts that you need uh, for the capital city of a country that's that's in a full scale war. And I imagine what I was off explained is I was in Kiev in, in 2014 while the war was going on in Donetsk, but now it's the air raid sirens that is different. Like you very much are fully aware that there's there's a war going on. Yes, you are. Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's still, but it's still, there's still a, a, a real disconnect because, you know, I, I, last week I went to visit Borodjanka. I left my home. Everything is beautiful, peaceful. I drive past my favorite restaurant that I ate in the night before and start to drive out of the city past the big malls. And then you start to see the destruction and then you see the dug in trenches. And this is, this is not 20 minutes from the city uh, heading, heading West, you know? Um, And then you see the destroyed large epicenter, which is like a, like a mad home Depot on steroids and it's completely destroyed. And then Borodjanka itself, where, uh, where there was massive bombings, uh, war crimes investigations are underway. And I see a family in one of the bombed out buildings, you know, pumping out the water from their apartment because they're getting ready to move back in. Um, at the same time that a woman is singing in the square because there's this desperate attempt to bring life back. And, and that right there is, is, is Ukrainian resilience. And, and for a Canadian audience, that would be like driving to Etobicoke, right? I mean, that's like driving from downtown Toronto to Mississauga, essentially. In terms of distance, yeah, like it's Hobobo, not even as yeah. far as Mississauga. Like it's really yeah. close. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it's scary close. What was it like? What was it like for the decision to go back? Uh, I mean, I realize other countries had started reopening their diplomatic presence in in the capital. Um, Canada was amongst the, the early groups that have gone back. What was that decision like? As much as you can talk about it. Um, I think that the, the decision came because it was it, it was time. It was possible. Uh, Ukrainians had done that um, amazing job of fighting back the Russians uh, uh, from 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 around around Kiev. The Russians retreated, and uh, and it meant that the the, the threat to to Kiev that we had left uh, for um, was uh, was was gone. So the, and it was time. Uh, we knew that activity was 
was returning here, political activity, uh, diplomatic activity, and uh, and of course, uh, Canada was as ever engaged in solutions, whether it's on the food security issues or on financial stability or on sanctions. All this, uh, you know, there, it was time to come back here and have some of the conversations uh, and 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 reconnect with the people who uh, were going to be important in helping us make the best decisions about how to support Ukraine. How about the staff? Because clearly when we talked about, for instance, Kabul, um, you know, there's always concern what happens to the local staff when, when the embassy closes or moves or shifts or the, it, the whole situation is very dynamic. How have you managed this time uh, to try and keep track of the staff? Where are they? How fast are you reopening? Most of our staff uh, are in Ukraine still uh, very f- some still in cave, uh, some in other parts. Uh, they went where they felt they needed to go to be safe. Uh, a number of them are are, uh, are abroad as well. And we have stepped in, stayed in very, very, very close touch uh, with all of them. I speak to them um, at the beginning. It was every day. Then we went out to three times a week. And, and just this week, we're starting two times a week. But we are in constant contact to make sure that they have, um, that they're that they're well supported and they're well connected to how, uh, what, what, what our plans are are where we are and uh and that they can help as they can because it will be a gradual reopening right like right now you're still it's still fairly bare bones i understand that's right that's right we'll we'll uh we'll open as the situation permits as the security situation permits so what kind of services are you able to offer um within within the city right now or within the country right now i i imagine there's there's still a lot of demand but is that is that demand still being funneled elsewhere Yep, there's uh, the consular services are all being delivered out of out of uh, out of Poland. Uh, out of it was out of Rzeszów. Uh That was actually a really great place uh, for us uh, for the kinds of demands that we had over the last couple of months and that still exist, which is people who need papers and we can go could go to the border easily and and help them uh, with that. The um, the other services related to visas that also is being uh, those are being served out of out of Warsaw and a lot of that actually is online. A lot of the uh, you know the the, the applications, uh, the uh, information it's it's all online um, and the, the the centers that have been set up now in Warsaw are are massive and uh, and able to contend with the kind of volumes that we're seeing on the on the visa demand. I mean, I mean, you have a background at Citizenship and Immigration Canada. Has has what have the challenges been, and what have the successes been, in, as far as trying to help out help Ukrainians uh, come to this country? The success has been that we have stood up a program that gives Ukrainians choice. Uh, they don't have to decide to be refugees. They don't have to decide to leave Ukraine forever. It is a, a program that very quickly gets them a visa for three years and a work permit if that's what they want. And, uh, and with a simplified online application, uh, they, can, uh, they, can, they, can, they, can, they can start their, their journey for a little bit of time in Canada or a lot of time in Canada. And as the situation evolves, they'll be able to make additional choices. So I think that's a huge success. And it was something I sort of very quickly considering it's not it's something that, that, that's never been done uh, in the immigration system before. And certainly, I imagine on your side, you were trying to figure out what it is that was needed because this is this is a, a unique situation. There is this idea that many people don't want to resettle permanently, uh, but they are hoping to go back. 
That's right. And, you know, I think uh, uh, that's that's exactly that's exactly how we see it. And that's what Ukrainians want. You know, this is what all Ukrainian ministers and government officials and even civil society and journalists say is that people need people will need to come back. People will want to come back, but also Ukraine will need them to come back to rebuild to get the uh, the economic activity going uh, and to to do all the work of you know gr- growing the grain and and moving the grain and uh, and uh, setting up the IT companies and rebuilding the schools and and all of what's going to have to happen so there's a, there's a, a a great optimism about people coming back as soon as possible I'm speaking with Larissa Galatza she's Canada's ambassador to Ukraine she's joining me tonight from Kiev. She's been back in the capital now for uh, for a few weeks after uh, Canada reopened the embassy there on that visit uh, from, uh, amongst others, Prime Minister Trudeau. Um, a lot is so far still a fairly bare bones affair. There's not a full on, the, the full embassy staff isn't there. We're not doing what we used to do, uh, but we are there. Our presence is there. I understand that you've been obviously speaking with government officials, with members of civil society. Uh, what are the needs right now? What are the challenges right now that, that Canada is seeing and that, and that you're relaying back uh, to folks here? My goodness, um, Where to start? There, are, there are a number of, uh, of challenges. Um, I mean, obviously, the ones that, that probably your listeners are most familiar with, and that's the, that's the, the challenge of, of fighting the war and winning the war, mm-hmm. and, uh, and everything that, the, that Canada, with its Western partners, is doing to provide uh, military equipment uh, to, to, to Ukrainians, understanding mm-hmm. what that is, uh, finding it, and, and getting it here as, as quickly as possible. Um, I think another challenge for Ukrainians is accountability and holding Russia to account for uh, for war crimes uh, and 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 possibly crimes against humanity. Um, that is absolutely important for Ukrainians to uh, to 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 tr- start to deal with what has happened to them, especially in those towns. You know, now that 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 have been liberated uh, uh, by Ukrainians uh, outside of Kiev, where the International Criminal Court is is already working to collect that evidence. Giving Ukrainians access to justice is absolutely critical. Um, so we're 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 working on that. Um, I'm sure Canadians uh, everywhere, especially uh, in uh, in the prairies, have heard about the issue with the grain that is stuck. 25 million tons of grain stuck in the port of Odessa. Um, I was shocked to learn that 400 million people per year are fed on the grain that is grown in Ukraine, in the Middle East, uh, in North Africa. Uh, the uh, so the fact that there's 25 million tons sitting there and it can't get out because the port is 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 blockaded. Um, Means uh, that a lot of s- solutions are being are being sought uh, for that to either open the Odessa port up or to move the grain uh, by by rail in in very in you know west. So um, that's another that's another challenge. I think a third a third uh, piece of work is is continuing to counter the disinformation. And I think as the war goes on and 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 maybe you know Western media tire a little bit of of the kind of coverage that that has been uh, happening um there's a there's a real threat that the russian narrative will get more space and so we need to keep talking about this war we need to keep getting the facts out and we need to um continue to challenge uh the russian disinformation uh, machine 
in terms of the grain, because I actually interviewed Sir Lawrence Friedman, a well-known British military strategist last week about this very issue. How can Canada help? What, I mean, what can we do? With the, obviously, the blockade, uh, you know, if we start sending ships through there, it's a whole process. What can we do in the short term to try to get that grain moving? Because I know, you know, the longer it sits there, the, the you know, the more damage is being done around the world. Um, when you look at the details of what it's going to take to move that grain over the border into the EU in a manner that it doesn't normally, this grain doesn't normally flow through the EU, um, there are um, there are technical things that need to happen. Um, sanitary and phytosanitary labs, um, all kinds of equipment. Uh, there are uh, so 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 there are discussions underway about what it is that Canada can provide in a in a in a technical uh, kind of assistance way, but there's also um, there's also uh, diplomatic work underway to rally uh, n- not just not Western Europe doesn't need to be rallied on this point, but other countries in the world to make sure they understand that this grain problem and the food security problem these countries are going to experience are the result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This goes back to the disinformation I was just talking about. This is not about sanctions. This is not about anything other than Russia having invaded Ukraine. Uh, So, uh, and there are countries uh, in the world whose governments for a variety of reasons are still um, prone to, to to believing that Russian uh, line. So uh, diplomatically, Canada is working to rally as many countries as possible to put pressure on Russia in whatever way we can, uh, in addition to all the sanctions, uh, to uh, to agree to corridors uh, into the into the port of Odessa because that is the only way to move large amounts of uh, of the grain out. Just on a personal note, I know what's it been like. I know you just celebrated a birthday. Happy birthday, by the way. Um, <laughs> what's it? What's it like to be back there? Just you. It's. It, it feels uh, important, uh, relevant. Uh, it's a. Uh, it has been from the very beginning of of my time as ambassador here. Always felt like a, a real privilege. Um, but uh, there's there's an urgency to the work now and and a relevance to it um, that uh, that that didn't exist before. Uh, so I'm very pleased personally to be here uh, to have a great team supporting me and uh, and doing what we can. You know, Russia invaded Ukraine because uh, because a successful and democratic Ukraine uh, is a threat to Putin's authoritarianism. Helping Ukraine become that successful democratic country is inside the DNA of of, of Canadians. Uh, and we've been working at it for a long time and to have been a, a part of that before the war, to see the progress, to have seen the progress that was being made and to see Ukraine having been on the cusp of some really, really critical changes um, and, and, and reforms uh, and then to have this senseless, unjust, uh, ridiculous invasion uh, happen. Uh, it's, it's been tough, but it's good to be back here to, uh, to pick up that, that, that energetic work that Canada does in Ukraine. Larissa Galatza, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
And joining me now with more from Ottawa is Alain Gauthier. He's the general manager of public works for the city of Ottawa. Thank you so much for your time on, on what I'm sure is a very, very busy day. My pleasure, Ben. Um, you were telling me earlier that, that you live in one of the areas that was uh, particularly hit hard. Um, what was it like on, on Saturday for you? Yeah, so I actually live in the community of Navin, and Navin is a, a village in the city of Ottawa, and, and it's one of the most significantly hit uh, community. At the time that the storm hit, I was actually uh, downtown Ottawa, and even though the storm was significant downtown, um, certainly not the same level of damage that we're seeing in the suburban areas and the rural areas of the uh, city of Ottawa. So uh, universally, just across, I mean, Ottawa is the biggest city by geographical territory in, in the country. Just how much damage are you talking about over the over the entire place? Yeah, they, Ottawa is a very um, large city, as as our mayor always likes to say, is you can fit uh, Vancouver, Calgary, Edmonton, uh, Toronto, Montreal within the limits of the city of Ottawa. So just to give you a sense of scale of the of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and and really, the areas that were the hardest hit were both some of our, our more mature communities, uh, where we have uh, bigger trees, uh, and also uh, the rural communities. And this is something that uh, wasn't just specific to one part of the city. Um, it's really was a uh, uh, an event that really is affecting basically the city from uh, from one end to the other. What does that mean in your in your position? Uh, what does that mean when it comes to trying to tackle the challenge? Because if it affects one area, then you can just concentrate on that. But if it affects everything, uh, that must be a huge, huge task for you and your team. For for us right now, it's it's a massive operation, and I I don't use the word massive lightly. Um, it's this is very significant in terms of operation. We've redeployed essentially uh, most of our public works resources to be able to focus on really three key priorities right now. One is our transportation system. We still have 40 roads that are still closed uh, because they're impassable because of hydro wires, hydro poles, trees that are still down. Um, We have several hundred intersections, controlled intersections that are still not functioning either because of damaged uh, traffic lights or there's no power to the lights. So that's a big impact right now and a big focal point. One of the big priority also right now is because we have we have residents that have been without power for several days now. Uh, there's a lot of spoiled food. And, and really, there's a big push right now to try to get spoiled food uh, out of the communities uh, before that becomes basically our, our next emergency from a public health perspective. And, and the last one, which is the one that's going to last the longest, is the debris cleanup. Um, we're dealing with piles and piles and piles of uh, piled up brush, uh, trees that are down that have to be cleaned up. Uh, and that's going to take us, uh, it's going to take us weeks to be able to get all of that cleaned up. Uh, are you getting help? Are you, are you getting help? I know, I know other areas around you were also hit. So I imagine a lot of communities are facing the same uh, problems when it comes to resourcing and getting enough people out there to do all the work that has to be done. Yeah, in terms of surrounding communities, you're absolutely right. Some of the other communities have also been impacted. Um, we've had to lean heavily on our, our contracted communities. So we have a lot of contractors that are uh, that are helping out. We also have a request of the province for um, for forestry staff to see if they can lend some uh, some support. Um, but as I mentioned, we've pretty much reallocated all of our resources towards uh, towards the cleanup efforts, and slowly but surely, we're going to make our way through it. 
I mean, uh, I'm thinking back to 2018, there were tornadoes, of course, uh, the touchdown. How does that compare to what you've had to deal with in the past? Or how does this one compare to anything you've had to deal with in the past? Well, this one doesn't really compare with with anything in the uh, uh, in the past. And, and the reason I would say that is when we've had tornadoes, the tornadoes have been fairly localized. Uh, so the damage was very extensive in the affected communities, but it was it was more limited in terms of impact area. Now we're dealing with basically replicating that level of damage across multiple communities across the uh, the city of Ottawa. So it just amplifies basically the uh, the recovery efforts. Um, in terms of some of those priorities that you mentioned, uh, I gather hydro is having having a tough time because of just the sheer amount of things that have been downed. Uh, how is that? Do you coordinate with them as well in terms of how that work gets done or where it's prioritized? Absolutely, we're working very closely with uh, our hydro Ottawa partners. And just for context, when the uh, uh, right after the event, uh, basically we had pretty much half of the city that was without power. So basically, there were over one hundred eighty thousand customers. Uh, without power. Uh, now, the latest update is that we're about at 74,000 uh, customers are still without power. So significant progress that's been made um, over the last few days, but also from a from a hydro perspective, the, the level of damage is is extensive and it's not just focused in one area, It's it cuts across the city. What about for sort of emergency services, things that need to have clear access, that need to have uh, an ability to get to and from them? Have you had to prioritize places like hospitals and so on, trying to clear those emergency lanes, emergency routes? Absolutely. The, the first order was just getting uh, roads re- opened up. So when I mentioned about the 40 roads that are still remaining closed, uh, initially we had a lot more uh, roads that were closed and, and to the point where uh, on the first day, we actually had plows going down some of the roads just to be able to push the trees to the side to at least allow emergency vehicles to be able to um, circulate through the community and also to allow residents to be able to access and, uh, and egress from their, uh, from their community. So that was very much the focal point, and that continues to be the focal point. Um, just in the coming days, you mentioned some of the things that are a real priority. Food, obviously, is one that we keep reading about because people have had a lot of stuff stored up. Freezers are all down. Uh, how does that work? How, how do you help people shift food from, from those areas? Yeah, that's really been the priority for the last couple of uh, days, and it will continue to be until we're the cleanup is really what we're trying to look at is basically different approaches to be able to uh, provide ability for residents to get rid of that food. So we have a regular collection process that's that's part of um, the city's uh, waste management process where we have green bin collection every week. So that continues. Um, but what we're doing is supplementing in some areas, uh, accelerating uh, the collection schedule. We've also installed bins at uh, large dumpster bins at strategic locations across the city. That also provides an opportunity for residents to be able to dispose of their uh, uh, spoiled food, and and that really is critical because that that food we re- we really don't want that to stay in the community. We don't want the vermins to uh, to start taking it over. So, like I said, that's that's very much a priority for the city right now. Ale, in this in these situations, as general manager of public works, do, do you look to other communities that have gone through similar? Uh, I mean, there's not many out there like this one, but do you look to other communities and what they've done in terms of how you you plan your reaction to these things? Absolutely, we we're as part of emergency planning, we're always looking at 
what other communities have gone through and, and learning from those lessons. Unfortunately, the city of Ottawa has gone through a lot of emergencies. So we also have a lot, a lot of lessons learned within, uh, within the organization from the ice storm uh, in 98, the floods in 2017 and 2019 to the tornadoes in, in 2018. And then we also had some in uh, 2019. So we, we certainly have our share of experience when it comes to managing emergencies. I guess that really changes the nature of your job to some extent, if you have to be prepared or at least trying to prepare for what could be called sort of freakish storms on a relatively regular basis. Yes. It's as much as we call them emergencies, they're starting to become more and more events that I wouldn't say that they're a normal course of business, but they're certainly reoccurring a lot more frequently than, um, than maybe 10, 20 years ago. So it's definitely something that does affect uh, the planning of our resources. How about just for you, um, Alain, and your home in Navin? How did everything, uh, how is everything back on the homestead for you? So we were lucky that the power came back uh, late uh, to overnight on Sunday. So we mm-hmm. were out of power for about a, for about a day. We had a generator to, to be able to uh, keep our fridge and our sump pump going. So overall, we, we fared very well. Um, Navin is not a big community, but just, a, a kilometer away, they still don't have power. And uh, and the level of, death of the devastation also is more significant there in terms of tree damage. So it's it's very bizarre sometimes when you look at, you've got streets that don't really appear to be touched or unharmed, and then you have, you've got streets over that are just totally devastated. Any advice to others out there in other communities around around Canada when it comes to trying to cope with these sorts of these sorts of the uh, weather events? Be prepared. Um, really, when we talk about emergency preparedness, uh, it's really important to have those measures in place and um, and really to look at basically what are the risks and the hazards that we're exposed to, and really plan for. Okay, if we have these events, how would we respond? Um, we talk about climate change. The, there are definitely changing patterns. We're in Ottawa, as I mentioned, in 2018 we had a tornado. In 2017 we had we had floods. In 2019 we had floods. Mm-hmm. Now we're dealing with the significant event. So these are not things that we say, okay, well we're planning for something that may happen once in 50 or or 100 years. They're they are becoming a lot more frequent. Allez, Gautier, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it, and uh, good luck with the cleanup. Thank you, Ben. 